and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we're going to head over to Falwell, Massachusetts to go claim our inheritance from our dead aunt. While we're there, we might go over to the morality picnic and, you know, maybe get thrown in jail. I don't know. But today we're going to be covering 1988's cult classic, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Now, Elvira is somebody who, in my life, has been around. You know, I'm a child of the 90s, so of course I remember her back from, like, the Coors Light commercial and, like, the ads that you'd see in the liquor store and stuff, but, like, I didn't really grow up watching her or anything. I'm a little younger, so Movie Macabre wasn't really uh, doing a whole lot when I was uh, a kid, and I wasn't watching it or anything, so... And plus, also, in terms of horror hosts, I really didn't have a whole lot of that when I was a kid. Um, I didn't watch uh, Monster Vision, for example, with Joe Bob Briggs. I've now watched it with The Last Drive-In and everything, but I didn't grow up with him. Same thing with Elvira. I think the closest thing you could come to is maybe having good old Michelle Trachtenberg on a Truth or Scare on Discovery Kids, I think it was. Anybody else remember that? But anyway, um, but yeah, I didn't really have that. This is actually more of a recent watch for me, I guess. Um, I think I watched it probably maybe in beginning of 2022, maybe 2021 sometime. Currently, right now, there's actually the Elvira 40th anniversary special that's on Shudder. And that's actually where you can go and watch Elvira Mistress of the Dark. And it's like her... And it's three other movies that she shows, including her own. You know, she kind of intersperses throughout, as she does. And that's, I think, where I first watched it. And then I recently just watched it not too long ago uh, in preparation for this podcast. And so I just really fell in love with this movie. I think it's so funny. I think it is absolutely campy and tongue-in-cheek and... It knows exactly what it is, which I really enjoy, and I think other people really enjoy it, too. I also just think that there is quite a bit to Elvira, just as a person, and also as a character, and also just finding out about the background information about this movie, and how it came to be, and the struggles it went through a bit as well, which we'll talk about as time goes on in the pod. Yeah, I absolutely think this is a a worthwhile movie to watch if you've never seen it before, and I'm so happy to be covering it. Uh, This is like a little early Christmas gift, if anything, since we are in the month of December now. So, yeah. Without further ado, though, as we normally do, I'm gonna go over some figures of the movie, go over the cast, maybe some quotes from critics, and then we'll move into some production history and just, you know, history about the film in general and the legacy that good old Elvira has had, and then we'll move on to a plot summary. So without further ado, let's get on to those figures. So Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, was released September 30th, 1988, and was written by Sam Egan, John Paragon, and Cassandra Peterson, otherwise known as Elvira, was directed by James Signorelli, and produced by Eric Gardner and Mark Pearson. Sandra Peterson's ex-husband. We're looking at a estimated budget of about seven and a half million dollars and a box office of five million five hundred ninety-six thousand two hundred and sixty-seven dollars. We're looking at a Rotten Tomatoes score of fifty-six percent on the tomato meter and a sixty-five percent audience score. 
We're looking at a 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb and a letterbox score of 3.6 out of 5. For our cast of characters, we have Cassandra Peterson pulling double duty as Elphira and great aunt Morgana Talbot, W. Morgan Shepard as great uncle Vincent Talbot, Daniel Green as Bob Redding, Susan Kellerman as Patty, Edie McClurg as Chastity Pariah, Robert Benedetti as Mr. Calvin Cobb, Kurt Fuller as Mr. Glotter, Jeff Conaway as Travis, one of the henchmen for Uncle Vinny, Frank Collision as Billy, one of the other henchmen, William Duell as Leslie Meeker, Pat Crawford Brown as Mrs. Meeker, Ellen Dunning as Robin Meeker, Chris Cam as Randy, Scott Morris as Sean, Ira Hyden as Bo, Trust McNeil as the anchorwoman and the voice of great aunt Morgana Talbot, and Phil Rubenstein as the director in the beginning. Some critical response quotes I was able to find about Elvira Mistress of the Dark are as follows. We have Alex Sandell from Juicy Cerebellum, who states, Bad, bad, bad. Stick to hosting late-night creature features, babe. We have Brandon Judell from Popcorn Q, who states, Stupidity with a cleavage. And then finally, we have Daniel Barnes from Dare Daniel, who states, This one-note vehicle throws ambiguity and subtlety out the window in favor of a barrage of unfunny boob jokes. And I will say this, you are all entitled to your own opinion, but I disagree with every single one of you personally. So before we move into any kind of plot summary for Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, I just wanted to go over some history about where exactly Elvira came from and the history about this movie and how it came to be. So for those of you who don't know, Elvira is the character that was created by Cassandra Peterson. So a little bit about Cassandra Peterson. She is from Manhattan, Kansas, and she grew up um, kind of liking just things that were off the beaten path. The things were a little weird. She always had kind of interested in, you know, horror theme type toys. And uh, she has stated one of the first horror movies she saw was House on Haunted Hill with Vincent Price, who we'll get into later. But pretty much, you know, she always really enjoyed enjoyed uh, just the darker things in life. And during her teen years, she actually was working as a drag queen go-go dancer in a gay bar in Colorado and a go-go dancer for soldiers at Fort Carson. But it wasn't until she went to Las Vegas, Nevada on a high school trip, she saw a live show there and really became inspired to try to become a showgirl. That was really her kind of goal, if you will. She was inspired by Anne Margaret from the film Viva Las Vegas, which is, I believe, one of Elvis Presley's films. But anyway, she decided she wanted to go out to Las Vegas to become a showgirl. And actually, she was able to become a showgirl in a show called uh, Viva Les Girls at the Dunes, where she actually met Elvis Presley and went on a date with him, apparently. She ended up having, like, small roles as a showgirl in, like, Diamonds Are Forever, the James Bond movie, and also played a topless dancer in this other movie called The Working Girls. And, you know, trying to just get gigs here and there being a showgirl and everything. In the late early 70s, she actually um, moved to Italy and became the lead singer of like a rock band, uh, which is kind of cool. And then she ended up coming back to the States um, after being in Italy for a while and toured nightclubs and discos and all that kind of stuff with her musical comedy act called Mama's Boys. But it wasn't until around 1979 where she had moved to Los Angeles um, and actually joined the Groundling Theater. 
which is an improv comedy troupe. Uh, we discussed earlier in the podcast episodes with uh, Roby Michelle's high school reunion because that's actually where that characterization came to be. So the, she had joined the Groundlings and she ended up creating because the Groundlings is all about you know creating characters that you can then you know do in your classes and then if you're funny enough you can get put into the Sunday company and then hopefully work your way up to the main company to you know get some some recognition and hopefully some notoriety so you can try to book jobs as an actor but she created this valley girl type persona and that definitely influenced elvira you know as the uh, character and she was just trying to you know get gigs here and there apparently she was one of two finalists for the role of ginger in a gilligan's island tv movie that was being done but she got dropped from that now we get into where she really found her own kind of bread and butter with horror hosting. In 1981, six years after the death of Larry Vincent, who was a horror host in Los Angeles, who starred as the host Sinister Seymour, who had a local LA weekend horror show called Fright Night. After his death, show producers decided they wanted to bring the show back. And I will say, if you've ever seen the movie Fright Night from, like, 1985, I believe it was, Larry Vincent, I think, is very much the inspiration for Peter Vincent, which is the character played by, I think it was Roddy McDowell, who is the horror host in that movie with uh, William Ragsdale and Chris Sarandon and all them. It's, it has to be, like, that is the definite inspiration. Uh, go watch Fright Night if you haven't. It's really good, actually. But yeah, so these people decided to bring back this whole idea of Fright Night, this horror host that they had on their local channel. The producers decided to use a hostess instead of a host, because they were like, we don't want to get some guy doing this, we want to get a, a lady. So they asked 1950s horror hostess Myla Nurmi, who had made the character Vampira back in the 50s, to pretty much try to revive that show. But by this point, Nurmi uh, was a little bit older, quite a bit, and so she didn't want to do the project being her. She was like, I'm a little too old to do it. I want to have someone else do it, and I will help to get the person, help train them, all that, um, so that you can get what you're looking for. So she was on this project for a short time, but then quit when the producers just weren't really working with her very well. Um, she actually really wanted to get an uh, actress by the name of Lola Falana uh, to play this vampire role, but it didn't end up really working out. They were having creative differences, and then it kind of just all fell apart. So instead, the station sent out a casting call for this particular character they were looking for, and... Cassandra came in, auditioned, and they won the role. And then producers really left it up to her to help create the image for this Vampira-like person, or this horror hostess, if you will. She and her best friend, Robert Redding, who she actually dedicated in memory this movie to, because um, he did die of AIDS-related complications before the movie released, came up with this sexy punk-slash-vampire look after the producers actually rejected her original idea to look something like uh, Sharon Tate's character from the Fearless Vampire Killers movie. So instead, they did this big hair, this like particular look that Elvira has been known to have now came from her and Robert Redding. So shortly before the first taping of this show with Cassandra Peterson, the producers of the show received a cease and desist letter from Myla Nurmi. Um, and besides the similarity in the format and the costumes within the show, Elvira's clothes 
closing line for each show, wishing her audience unpleasant dreams, was similar to Vampira's closer, which was bad dreams, darling. Because, you know, Myla Nermi was, I uh, don't believe American. She was, like, from Europe somewhere. Uh, the court, though, ruled in favor of Cassandra Peterson. Uh, also, partly because I don't think Myla Nermi could really actually get to the courthouse to be able to defend herself, I guess, for what I've heard. But the court did hold that, quote, likeness means actual representation of another person's appearance and not simply close resemblance. So Peterson claimed that Elvira was nothing like Vampira except for the basic design of the black dress and the black hair. And Nermi claimed that uh, Vampira's image was based on Morticia Adams, which was a character of Charles Adams in these cartoons that appeared in the New Yorker. And of course, now Adam's family has had a resurgence. It has the two live action movies. It's gotten a cartoon, I believe. It got rebooted in the 2020s. So if anything, Myla Nermi, yeah, she made Vampira, but she was even using, you know, the Adam's family as kind of her inspiration. And, you know, it's the old adage that nothing is ever actually all that original. So, you know, there's that. People started watching what ended up becoming Movie Macabre, uh, which started in, I believe it was 1981 or 1982. And pretty much that was the shtick where it was uh, Elvira who would introduce the show, uh, make some jokes, and then introduce the movie that she would be pretty much roasting uh, for what she did. So she showed all sorts of different types of movies that were just really pretty much B-movies. Uh, generally. And that was kind of a big thing that she did, really, was just this idea that a lot of what she showed really were these more, like, B-type movies. She never really showed super-duper gory, super-crazy movies, I guess, because you kind of couldn't just on TV, but she could definitely make fun of them, for sure. Uh, especially with B-movies, it's a lot easier to make fun of them because they're just so bad they're good sometimes and all that kind of stuff. But she gained notice because she had tight-fitting, low-cut cleavage displaying black gown. She had this kind of California Valley Girl image. She brought a satirical, sarcastic edge to her commentary, very much relying on, you know, del entendres and being risque and all that kind of stuff and really being able to poke fun at herself, which was really cool and wonderful. And that's where the idea for this movie comes into play. So when it comes to the production of this film, as Elvira's character really skyrocketed to fame, Cassandra Peterson announced plans to spin her uh, character off into a feature film. And she did want to do that, for sure. Um, people were getting notice of her, especially in LA, but then I think also once she became syndicated, she was able to then, you know, kind of have this ability to uh, write a ticket for herself in some way. So, NBC casting director Joel Thurm pitched the idea of a sitcom to the then-network president, Brandon Tartikoff, who became enthusiastic about the notion of having the show. However, Peterson had her heart set on bringing the character to the big screen, and there were concerns that she would never get the opportunity if she had made the leap to primetime. So, 
she didn't want to just have her own TV show. She really more so wanted to have this movie. So Tartikoff later finalized a deal with for NBC to produce a film, which would be followed up with sequels and eventually a TV series. But he ended up leaving the network before a show could actually materialize. So Peterson and her frequent writing collaborator, John Paragon, who unfortunately has passed away since then, but he is also known as uh, Jombie from Pee-wee's Playhouse. And also is in this movie as the gas station attendant in the beginning, which is fun. They met in the Groundlings when they were together in there. And he worked his way up from a recurring guest star to actually a writer on her uh, movie Macabre series. I think he used to play the breather or something um, on that show. But because that was her friend, like, you know, of course, she's going to have her have him in her stuff. And so John Paragon, you know, was always kind of her writing buddy. So Sam Egan, the other writer of this movie, was brought into the fold because he was an experienced TV writer. He had actually written a script for a show called The Fall Guy, and it was like the Halloween episode, pretty much. And he he had impressed Cassandra Peterson with that episode and be like, hey, you know what? I think this guy has some cred. Because her and uh, John Paragon, they come from sketch comedy. They come from improv comedy. So I think they had to get reined in a little bit, if you will, uh, for them to actually make a movie and you know not just be left to their own devices um pretty much tartikoff so brandon tartikoff he pushed for a storyline that was similar to harper valley pta um and after the first draft um was turned in the writers were forced to then add a group of teenagers which in this it does work um but again it was because they wanted to have that kind of similar feel to something like harper valley pta uh which then reduced the screen time for all of the other characters uh that were in this because because they ended up having the teens in this. So after, okay, so they have this movie idea and they're writing it. And I think even Cassandra Peterson said when they were writing the movie, it was almost like therapy for her in a way, you know, working with John Paragon and Sam Egan on this. But after appearing in a small part in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which she is in, if you've ever watched that movie, it's fantastic. And it has E.G. Daly in it and Paul Rubens and all these different people. Wonderful. And Cassandra Peterson plays like a, um, a biker a chick in it, which is really great. Peterson really wanted Tim Burton to direct her film, but he got tied up with the production of Beetlejuice and he couldn't do it. I think it was that. I would also have loved if there was like a John Waters version of this movie. It would have worked so well. Oh my God. But the, alas, that didn't happen. But Brandon Tartikoff then tapped James Signorelli to direct. He only had one feature film under his belt, but by this point, he had been doing uh, commercial parodies for Saturday Night Live since 1977. So he at least had TV cred and was able to at least understand what it was like to have to make a movie kind of a thing. He was able to bring it to life, which is good. Um, I do think one of the interesting things about this is that it does feel kind of like it's a PG-13 movie, but it it does kind of feel like it's the best TV movie, if you will. Um, like It just does. I mean, there's way more boob jokes, I think, than maybe a TV movie would have. But I do think like, uh, yeah, I, I just think like it's very interesting that this was released in theaters, but we'll get to that in a little bit of how that kind of all played out. As I stated before, you know, in 1986, uh, Robert Redding died from AIDS-related complications. Um, she dedicated the movie to him and actually also named 
the character Bob after him, which is very nice. Also with this too, the name of the fictional town. So there's no Falwell, Massachusetts, I don't think. But it's funny because that's really more of a resemblance to Jerry Falwell. So it is kind of funny when you think about it. Jerry Falwell is this horrible piece of shit who's, you know, a televangelist and he's a conservative activist and horrible. So it is funny that it's called Falwell, Massachusetts. And the uh, and the joke is, is that everyone in Falmel, Massachusetts, barring the some people in the teens, I guess, um, are pretty much a bunch of just conservative assholes um, who don't understand this lady who, you know, has this like tight fitting dress with her cleavage out. And what is she even doing? So a little bit about casting for Elvira Mistress of the Dark. So, of course, because Cassandra Peterson herself is a groundling, she, of course, included other groundlings in this movie, too. As I stated, she had John Paragon, the co-writer of this movie, in a cameo as the gas station attendant who blows up smithereens. But we also have Edie McClurg, who is Chastity Pariah. Love her from Carrie, and I hate Ferris Bueller, but she's good in that movie. Tress McNeil, who has gone on to be in everything animated, but she was in The Simpsons, she was on Futurama, I believe she is the voice of Mom on Futurama, which is amazing. She's the anchorwoman in the beginning, and she's also the voice of Aunt Morgana. Joey Arias, who I believe is a drag performer, if I'm not mistaken, plays the hitchhiker in the beginning, where <laughs> I think Elvira picks them up and they're like a crazy person or something, and then like Elvira's just as crazy, and they just jump out, which is funny. Lynn Marie Stewart, who is the bartender. Um, she's a fun face to see. And then you also have uh, Paul Rubens was actually supposed to appear in a bit part, but because of the popularity and the production of Pee Wee and also Big Top Pee Wee, that didn't really come into play and he couldn't really do it, unfortunately. But he does have a bit of a cameo because there is a Pee Wee Herman doll that is in Elvira's dressing room in the beginning uh, because that is a friend of hers. So then you also have Eve Smith, who was a regular on Movie Macabre, who played um, Elvira's auntie Virus, I believe. She was also in there a little bit. Um, and also, uh, Peterson's parents were apparently also in here as extras uh, during her arrival in Fallwell. And her assistant was actually the game show girl in the beginning, which is really fun. And also, the motorcycle cop who stops her in the beginning is played by an ex-boyfriend of hers by the name of Bill Cable. Um, she had posed with him uh, for a 1974 Playgirl spread before she you know, hit it big. And, you know, she's done some, some nude modeling before, of course. So, as I stated before earlier, one of the big... Uh, horror movies that was really influential for Miss um, Peterson was, of course, House on Haunted Hill. And the role of Elvira's Uncle Vinny was actually specifically written for Vincent Price. And even though they become friends, he did pass on it. I don't know if he necessarily passed. People say he passed because of the racy material of it. Although, I don't completely agree with that. I think he was probably into doing it, and he probably would have done it, but it maybe just didn't work out for him to do it. And plus, also, this was around a time where I think he had been in, like, Edward Scissorhands at that point. But, you know, I mean, I just didn't, you know, maybe it just didn't work out for him. I don't think it was because of the material, necessarily. But, you know, bygones be bygones. But producer Joel Thurm, he did zero in on uh, William Morgan Shepard, who ended up playing the role. But he became frustrated at Shepard because he changed his readings from one audition to the next. On the day that Shepard had to audition for the network execs, Thurm told him to be more evil 
Um, and Shepard took this to heart and he ended up being more evil, which got him the part. And I think he does fabulously in this. The fun kind of thing is Bob Redding. He's written as the male equivalent of a blonde bimbo or a himbo, as we we lovingly refer to. But they had difficulty finding anybody who could really pull this off for both the acting skills that were needed and also the looks. But Daniel Green came in and he came into audition and he's convinced that he got the part really because he was genuinely stunned you know by one of the remarks that peterson had because of course she's just like (laughs) this like borscht belt comic with you know a tight fitting dress with her cleavage out you know um he really maybe was just coming in and was genuinely shocked by something and i think he has to play that kind of dumb himbo guy a little bit to to make it work which i thought was really fun kurt fuller who plays uh the realtor uh, in this movie, was actually supporting himself working in real estate because you know it's hard out here for actors, and so he was so convinced he bombed his audition that he said he quit show business. You know he didn't want to do it anymore, and then he ended up getting this role, which is like super cool. And the big kind of the lore of this uh, casting, if you will, is that the role of Randy uh, in this movie, uh, who's one of the teenagers, he. It was narrowed down to the guy Chris Cam who ended up doing it, and apparently also a unknown Brad Pitt at that time. And Cam won the role because apparently Cassandra Peterson thought that Pitt was just so handsome that Elvira would actually just fall in love with him as opposed to Bob. And that would be wrong, because he's a teenager, technically. Although I don't think he was a teenager at this time, but whatever. But yeah, I think that's so interesting. So that's a little bit about casting for the movie. Um, Again, they found this great cast of people to do this movie. So with filming, uh, this was shot over a span of eight weeks between January and March 1988. The first scenes were done at a bowling alley in California. And Cassandra Peterson worried about um, beginning the production with her big character monologue. um, But there were a lot more stressors that came. One of the main stressors that happened, I mean, just for the fact that this was kind of a low-budget quote movie, if you will. And that kind of brings its own sorts of uh, hardships with it. Uh, one of the big issues was the on-screen dog, Benny, who plays uh, Algonquin, or Gonk. It was a poodle who really didn't seem to like anybody but his trainer. So Peterson couldn't was not allowed to use a permanent dye on the dog's fur. They had to use vegetable dye. Um, it had to be re- touched up and reapplied every day. The dog couldn't hit its mark. It wasn't really trained all that well, apparently. And apparently it attacked Kurt Fuller's ankle, which left long-lasting scars, And honestly, another thing, too, was that there were actually entire scenes that apparently had to get dubbed because of the commands of the trainer for the dog being too loud because the dog didn't know how to act. So, you know, it worked out because Algonquin, you know, Gonk is a great little character who turns into a, a rat, I guess. But like... You know, it just was not easy to uh, to have this dog on set. You know, they always say don't work with animals or kids if you can help it. And uh, I'm not saying that that's always bad, but apparently it was not good on this end. So, you know, we got this movie made and then it went into post-production so that it could be released. Now, what happened was this movie got completed. Wonderful, great awesome right so the movie as i stated before was produced by nbc which is where brandon tartikoff comes in but then he left uh which kind of 
stalled the production. They set up a distribution deal with New World Pictures. So if you remember with New World Pictures, um, that was the studio, that was the distributor that released Hellraiser. I think they did the first two Hellraiser movies. They also did the movies Heathers and a couple other ones. Uh, And then, just as this movie was slated to hit theaters, New World pictures filed for bankruptcy and literally the day before this movie came out or something they had gone bankrupt i guess and that really affected the marketing of this movie the marketing campaign was halted the release was supposed to be thousands of theaters because again this is a movie that was supposed to be distributed you know nationally but instead it was just a few hundred theaters it was released in i think it went from over a thousand obviously to something like 600 which is not very much when you're looking at movie theaters especially in the 80s where you had a home video market but like you know people were still going to the movies we didn't have streaming we didn't have dvds you know you would still go to the movies to watch a movie so that didn't help either it didn't help also that critics were just brutal to this movie and without promotion to entice potential viewers this really did fail at the box office and it did fail critically too because again maybe people weren't really all that i don't know what it is maybe they weren't open to this idea maybe it was a thing of like people i think knew who elvira was but maybe it was just it was a little bit before its time if you will i will say though too though even though it was a bomb critically and at the box office it did become a bestseller on video It became one of the highest rated programs on NBC when it released in 1990, when they released it on um, TV, which is just the soup that we need for a cult classic to come about. (laughs) But I think with this movie, the Elvira character after this movie and even before it, but especially after it, I mean, this character has just evolved into this lucrative brand, you know? She has different things like, you know, Halloween costumes, both unlicensed and licensed, I'm sure, comic books, trading cards, action figures, pinball machines, everything, so many different things. She's been on the cover of Femme Fatale's magazine. Um, She was able to make this movie and then also made a second movie, Elvira's Haunted Hills, which I have seen. It is on Shutter right now because Joe Bob Briggs did do something. It was the uh, Haunted Hangover or something like that, where he showed Elvira's Haunted Hills and Popcorn. And he had Cassandra Peterson come on for, for Elvira's Haunted Hills, where she got to talk about it. But yeah, this legacy that Elvira has had really is just so awesome. You know, she then made the second movie. She had to finance pretty much all of it herself with her ex-husband um, and ended up making Elvira's Haunted Hills. It was done in Romania for about under a million dollars. Apparently with little budget left for promotion of that movie, um, Cassandra Peterson and her husband, her ex-husband now, but her husband at the time, screened the film at AIDS charity fundraisers across America to try to get, you know, that's how they tried to get this movie like seen. Uh, For many people in attendance, this is their first opportunity to really see the woman behind the Elvira character. Movie Macabre then also went into TV syndication with public domain films. And it's cool too because Elvira has been able to kind of come back and do things here and there with Movie Macabre. She's been able to uh, do more uh, within recent years, probably within the last 10 or 15 years. She has done, you know, different movies with her movie macabre, her format, if you will. And then, of course, they did do uh, the Shutter special, which I was talking about earlier in the pod. 
which was nice. And also, in 1993, they did get um, a pilot for CBS called The Elvira Show made. It was not picked up, unfortunately. Apparently, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, But it was an expansion of this movie, pretty much. So it was Elvira and her family moving into a new neighborhood with her older aunt and trying to just deal with uptight neighbors, nosy neighbors, and all that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, it was not picked up by anybody, so there's nothing for it. And then we, of course, have, you know, this idea that, like, Elvira has been able to do so much. So Cassandra Peterson really doesn't do the character as much anymore. I think she used to have a live show that she did at Knott's Berry Farm, I believe. Uh, But she doesn't really do that anymore. I don't really think she gets in the garb a whole lot anymore, really, because apparently it's just torture, which I guess any drag queen will tell you like yes it's probably torture but she has been able to really make a name for herself make a brand for herself and be able to profit off that brand which hell i would too i mean of course she also was able to release her memoir yours cruelly elvira memoirs of the mistress of the dark in this book she talks about many different things about her life and and all of that also including the fact that she has been in a committed relationship with a woman for the past like 20 years which is awesome because what I think is so great about Elvira is really just the idea that she is this woman who is not afraid of her sexuality. She really uses it to her advantage. She is seen as other and she is seen as othered because of who she is and because of the way she looks and and all that. But she uses it to her advantage and she doesn't let it stop her. What I think is so great is that the fact that she is this person who on the outside is very sexy looking and and knows she is of course like with her character she has this loaf cut tight-fitting dress that shows off her cleavage and she became this figure that was lauded by straight men for you know for example and and of course because she has these big tits and you know she's pretty and she has this like valley girl thing going on while secretly you know and not really saying a whole lot about it she's actually a queer person and a queer woman like that's so awesome like you know and i think that's what's so cool and i think that is exactly why the queer community especially loves elvira because not only is she just like a fucking drag queen pretty much which is awesome but like she herself is a queer person and she can understand what it's like but also she is somebody who i think queer people look at and can be like wow like she is using her sexuality she is not afraid to be who she is and she's not afraid to be that you know kind of off the beaten path person um and she embraces it and i think that's very much why people you know growing up with avira really they kind of went towards for her um so i just think that's awesome and and you know, I'm I'm definitely a fan, and I hope with the however much time left we have with her on this earth, I really hope that she gets a renaissance, if you will, more so than she already has. Because if someone like Joe Bob, who I, I enjoy Joe Bob, and I like watching The Last Drive-In and all, I think if he has it, why can't she? She absolutely could do it. Even just as Cassandra Peterson, I would just watch her read the fucking phone book, honestly. But anyway, with all that being said, my gush section is over with, with Elvira. I love her. Without further ado, though, we're going to move into a plot summary of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. 
So we open our film with black and white B-movie that is showing. It's actually the movie from 1956 called It Conquered the World, which is a Roger Corman movie, which is funny because uh, Roger Corman actually pretty much had New World Pictures. Uh, It was like one of his companies that he had. And then also, uh, of course... Uh, there's a line in here uh, in the movie where Elvira talks about Roger Corman movies. Like, haven't you ever seen a Roger Corman movie? But anyway, you have this uh, film playing, and then you come into this TV station where we meet uh, our good old Elvira, played by Cassandra Peterson, and she is doing her uh, local television show. Uh, I don't know if we actually got the name of it, but we uh, see her doing her shtick of, you know, on the couch, making her jokes and everything, and And then in the middle of doing all of this, we also see that what they're doing is that she's finishing her show and then they're setting up to do the local news and all that, where we get intro to um, an anchorwoman lady and a few other people. Uh, Like I said earlier, it was Tress McNeil, who has gone on to be a very prolific voice actress. We see this kind of idea of what Elvira is dealing with um, at her local TV station that she works at. We then get our uh, introduction to the new station manager who who is, I believe his name is Earl Hooter, who is played by good old Lee McLaughlin. And he is just like this Texas looking, um, <laughs> good old boy looking, uh, fucker pretty much, who is introducing himself to Elvira and you know, she's just not into any of it. And so he then sexually assaults her by grabbing her uh, boobs and saying it's milking time. And she steps on his foot with her heel. And she says, you know what? I quit. I don't need this shit. Whatever. You know, take this job and shove it. So love obviously so she decides to quit this job even though it makes sense she just got you know sexually harassed by this new manager guy and you know why would i want to stay there so she then goes to her dressing room where she says all right screw this i can't do it anymore she talks to her manager manny who's played by charles wolf and he is talking to her um because in the meantime while working at this tv station she's also trying to get her las vegas showgirl review show up and running but uh it seems that they need capital in order to do that and they need money to be able to do that and so she is told that she would need fifty thousand dollars to be able to get her show up and running and she's like well where the hell am i gonna get fifty thousand dollars what do you mean in this uh sense you get somebody who knocks on the door and also you do see that there is a Pee Wee Herman doll um, that is like up in her dressing room, which is really cute because Polly Rubens is a friend of hers. She gets a telegram uh, to come to Massachusetts to get her inheritance from somebody who is great aunt Morgana Talbot, uh, who she knew nothing about. Um, but she's like, hey, you know what? I guess I'll, uh, I'll go to Massachusetts. Isn't that timing? You know? And so that's kind of funny. We also then see this fun like showcase showdown dream um now for anybody who doesn't know the showcase showdown is the thing on the prices right at the end of the show where the people who get the highest points or the highest 
dollar values they go and compete in this showcase showdown where they're showing all these like prizes and everything they can get and they have to value what they uh what they're all worth and then whoever gets it can get their showcase which is great or they can get both showcases if they do it in a particular way but anyway so she has this like weird showcase showdown thing where she's being shown all these things that she's gonna inherit um from this guy who's like the fucking host pretty much of this which is really funny who is played by william court the uh game show host and also the lawyer and also her assistant uh elvira's assistant is actually in the game show um dream as well but we find out it's a dream and then and on this uh, sense, when we finish all that, we then start our title sequence because she is starting her cross-country journey because she has to go from California all the way to Massachusetts to go and get her inheritance. And so we get our title sequence where we see this is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. She is driving across the country um, in order to get this and in the meantime, she is like driving through Kansas. She also drives through, um, and gets pulled over by a cop on a motorcycle who this cop is played by her old ex-boyfriend, Bill Cable. And she makes like a fun little, like kind of joke to him. And then she ends up being like, Oh, I need to get a new joke. And so she takes her ticket and she just sticks it in her glove box of her fabulous car that she just has gotten a bunch of tickets, I guess, because she is a badass, as we know. So we see her just like driving, driving, you know, she's eating her like nachos, I think. She's also eating a a hot dog that then the hot dog wiener just like falls on her chest, which is obviously like a, a... penis boob joke obviously so but you know she's just rocking out just enjoying herself on her little drive and so then when the title sequence is all over we then see her getting gas at this gas station the (laughs) so the gas station attendant's there this gas station attendant is played by john paragon who is the co-writer of this movie and one of cassandra peterson's very best friends who has since passed but he plays the gas station attendant where he it's a self-serve like gas station he's just sitting there he's smoking of course because that's what you do at the gas station and so um she is like getting her gas and then she's like cleaning off her window but then she's like pushing her chest against the window when she's cleaning it um just accentuating her boobs that much more which is just fantastic honestly and i could uh, go for it for hours i could watch it for hours she then finishes up and she says you know those things will kill you right and so he's like yeah whatever have a good day lady she puts the gas nozzle back and then she but she didn't realize that like the gas was like on the ground and so the guy's cigarette just like rolls over to it and then it just like sparks this fire and then the gas station just explodes are behind her and so the guy's dead pretty much but you know i mean he probably didn't actually die though you know what i mean like this is all just like a fun weird cartoon you know what i mean and then we also get a nice little thing with her cross-country journey where she, she comes across the amish in their little horse and buggy which i just think is really cute i guess she stopped through lancaster or something i don't know but anyway so i love that they just like look at each other and then she waves at them and i thought that was very nice so in the meantime uh elvira does f- arrive in fallwell massachusetts 
And so she is uh, having car trouble as she's coming in. So this is where we kind of get introductions to everybody uh, in the town. So we have Chastity Pariah, played by Edie McClurg. Uh, she's walking around with her friend. Uh, we then see uh, some of the teenagers as well. Uh, we have Chris Cam, who's playing Randy. We have Ira Hayden, who had been coming off of Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, to do this movie. So he was coming off right hot on that. And so then, yeah, we see that Elvira's having some car troubles because she gets to the town square, it's town center, and then her hood just, like, pops off <laughs> because she's just driven all that way. That is kind of a far drive, though. That's crazy. But anyway, so she goes to this mechanic uh, that they tell them to go to because, of course, she uses her, her sexuality and her boobs to be able to get these young men to push her over to the mechanic and all that, as you do. So the mechanic looks at her car and is like, okay, well, you know, I can fix it for you and all that. And then she's like, well, where can I get a room around here? Is there a motel around here? So as she's like walking away with her suitcases and all that, the mechanic guy says, nice tits, which I just thought was kind of a funny line. But she then gets a room at the Cozy Cot Motel, which is headed up by our wonderful Mrs. Meeker and uh, Mr. Meeker, uh, who are played by... Pat Crawford Brown and William Duell, respectively. Now, I will say this right here, right now. I did not realize who Pat Crawford Brown was. I didn't really know her like that. But let me tell you something, y'all. I just talked about Romy Michelle not too long ago in this podcast, and I did an episode on it, of course. If you didn't already know this, uh, Pat Crawford Brown is the truck stop waitress in Romy Michelle's high school reunion. I did not know that. I was like, wait a minute, like, I didn't fucking know that. And when you look at it, really, you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But yeah, that's who she is. But anyway, so she comes to this motel, and you can see that, like, Mrs. Meeker is not into her at all. And Mr. Meeker's kind of into her, but, like, you know, of course, he can't actually really be. So anyway, but then we have Elvira gets a room at the Cozy Cot, you know, because she can. And in this, she also meets the youngest granddaughter or daughter question mark of the Meekers Robin played by Ellen Dunning and we see that you know Elvira's trying to figure out what's going on like what do you guys all do for fun and there's not really a whole lot to do around Falwell Massachusetts instead of uh going to the bowling alley so you know that's what Elvira's gonna go do so she gets her little room at the cozy cot and she goes over to the bowling alley later and so she comes in you see these two guys sitting with each other just being dudes and then she comes in Elvira comes in looking fabulous and so she sits down and these guys come up and they're being creeps to her as one a guy does to a woman who is you know getting particularly sexy I guess God, anyway. Blech. But she owns these creeps, though. I love it, though, because they're, like, all being gross to her. And she takes these two flies of beer and just, like, pours it on their crotches, which is awesome. And then they're all, like, going to try and rough her up. And she's like, I cut you, man. You know? And she brings out her knife. That isn't actually a knife. She, like, stabs the guy, but it's not an actual real knife. But she owns these creeps because she is a badass woman who can protect herself. But that's when you also get the introduction to Bob, played by Daniel Green. Because you saw him earlier. You saw him talking to, I think, the bartender. Maybe it was Patty. I don't actually know. Because we didn't meet Patty quite yet. But 
he's there with his like i noticed he had a really nice butt actually uh because i was like damn he's got a nice butt but anyway so like uh you see him at the bowling alley but then you see that he actually comes up and like punches one of the guys and is he's trying to help out elvira uh which is very nice of of him to do and so you then have um, this intro to Bob, like I was talking about. You then get this scene where you then have Bob and Elvira getting to know each other a little bit, which is all very nice and well. But you can see that Bob isn't really, he's into her, but he doesn't want to just move really quickly or anything from what it seems like. She finds out that he is actually the proprietor of the local movie house. And she's like, oh, I'm in movies. Like, what do you show? And he says, I can only play play g-rated films and she's like well there's nothing wrong with g-rated films as long as there's lots of sex and violence which i love and so then you have this intro where you see they're kind of falling for each other or you see elvira at least falling for bob obviously again bob is supposed to be kind of this himbo guy so whether or not he realizes right away that she's into him i don't really know but like anyway uh, I just thought that was really funny. And then, you know, she, like, wants to kiss him or wants him to kiss her. But, you know, it doesn't happen that way. And she ends up being able to just, like, go home, I guess. But actually, uh, she goes back to her cozy cop motel, though. Uh, and she has the reading of the will that happens the next day. So the reading of the will is you see uncle Vinny played by w morgan shepherd and then you see these you see these other uh, older people you see this old lady and this old guy there who you find out are actually the housekeeper of aunt morgana and then the driver of aunt morgana and so you see that you also see uncle Vinny and his um henchmen as well you get introductions to them uh the one henchman is played by jeff conaway and the other one is played by frank collision so you kind of see them as well but they're at the reading of the will and we find out that i think it was the one lady got like five thousand dollars and some some stuff from aunt morgana then the driver got five thousand dollars and some stuff from aunt morgana and then Elvira's like, you got $10,000 for nothing. Like, I wonder what I'm going to get. Oh, my God. Um, and then we find out what Elvira actually gets, which is a house, a poodle, and a book of recipes, which is kind of fun. Uh, and then we find out what Uncle Vinny got from his sister, Aunt Morgana, and he got jack shit. Um, so he's not exactly happy about that. But then after the reading of the will, you, I think, have a scene where, like, Elvira and Vinny kind of get to see each other, get to know each other a little bit. And actually, that's also where I believe where Vinny is trying to get the book of recipes, quote unquote, from Elvira. And she's like, OK, well, you can have it. Like, I'll be- I'll give it to you for 50 bucks. Come over to my, I guess, new house later and I'll, I'll give it to you. And then we also have a scene as well um, after she gets all these things. Um, so where she gets the goes to the house, uh, the realtor, I believe, uh, brings in her to it realtor is played by kurt fuller he shows her this house that is like we think it's this one house when they pull up to it but it actually isn't it is actually this other just big spooky house of course elvira would get that one we then see that there's a poodle in there whose name is algonquin um who's just a poodle and then the book of recipes that you know we got as well and we also have a scene where we see uncle Vinny and chastity because Chastity found out that Elvira is actually related to Vinny, 
And so they kind of are making their little plot to try to take her down because Chastity doesn't like Elvira because it's just how out there and liberal she is. How dare she? And then Vinny, of course, is kind of plotting his own way because he's trying to get something from Elvira and he's trying to, you know, get something from his niece pretty much. But we have the Elvira house tour, which is nice. So you get kind of a introduction to what this house is and what Elvira's come into. I like how they say that the price of the house, because she's trying to get her money too. She's trying to get $50,000 to be able to have her Las Vegas show. So they say something about how like, how much do you think I get for this house? And they say $70,000, which I'm just like, God damn inflation. Oh my God. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Anyway, so we have, she now has this house, which is nice. And then she takes Algonquin and, uh, is like, now what am I going to do with you? And so she gives, uh, the dog a makeover and a new name instead of Algonquin. It's now Gonk, which is nice. And so then you see Elvira starts getting ready for bed because it's getting to be about that time and, you know, got to go to bed. And so... In the meantime, you see that she's getting ready for bed, but then also the boys from earlier, so Randy and his friends, are like deciding to go and try to spy on her, which is so funny, um, kind of, sort of, because they're like in the rain, I believe, because it's raining, and so they're like going up, and they have this like photo, uh, this uh camera that's what it's called and so uh they're trying to get photos of her like you know uh elvira like you know stripping or something which is kind of funny because uh elvira cassandra peterson has done nude modeling before in the past in her younger days and so you know uh them trying to catch a glimpse of her and all that just kind of harkens back to this idea that she's revered for her body that she has and and all of that but she then catches these boys being perverts and she makes them fall out of the she makes them fall out of the window that they're like trying to be on and i love how she has like her face mask on and like her hair up and everything it's really funny which i just love i also enjoy the crazy amount of hair that uh elvira has just going to bed i really really enjoy that and love it because it's just literally on the bed just like all over the place which i thought was great and so we then get elvira's nightmare which is like her i believe what it was is that she's in bed with her fabulous hair and everything and then she just hears the voice of aunt morgana who's trust mcneil just saying elvira Elvira. And so she's just like, what the hell? So she's getting up. She gets a candle. She's like going through her big new scary house. And so she then goes up to the, this creepy attic room pretty much. And then she goes in there and she's looking around for something. But then it's like this spooky woman that comes behind her. And then it's like this spooky, scary thing. And you're just like, oh my God, no, I'm in a horror movie. So then, you know, she then, it's a nightmare. You find out that she's actually just sleeping, which is so funny because in one way you have this one like, uh, 
way of how she looks where she has this like fabulous hair and you know she has this particular way of sleeping and then when you actually see that it was an actual dream and a nightmare uh she's really just in her band t-shirt and like her hair's up and has it in like a wrap or whatever because of course she would and so i just thought that was very funny and i just thought you know it keeps the it keeps the comedy going which i really appreciate and enjoy we then have the next day where the local teen boys and girls come over to help fix up Ivalira's house because she says she wants to try to get that uh, fixed up so that she can try to sell it because she wants to get that money. And so it's like the Boys and Fucking Girls Club, apparently, where they just go and, like, create a community project, which is really nice. (laughs) I love that where, like, they're all just, like, pitching in, and it's, like, so adorable, which I think is really, really nice, uh, where they're all just getting together, and, you know, they have some, like, drinks and stuff, and people are raking up leaves, and they got their tools and shit and whatever. I love the line where some the boys brought more men to kind of help and elvira just says oh great just grab a tool and start banging which is just really funny and you know of course that just like is the humor of this movie which i thought was really great um so the local boys and girls are coming to help fix up elvira's house to make it look all nice and though so that it's kind of like a not really like an extreme home makeover moment but like you know they have her close her eyes and then she opens them and she's just like, it's fantastic. And it's like an ugly looking house, kind of. It was already kind of drab before, but now it's just like weirdly colorful and odd. It's just very weird. And so, but she loves it though. <laughs> and so, of course, she would, which I appreciate and love. Then we have this boring ass board meeting, pretty much, that's happening. So I believe, like, Mr. and Mrs. Meeker, I think, are on the board. We then have the local principal on the board. And of course, Chastity, Pariah, and her trifling ass are there. And they all are kind of talking about, you know, Elvira, point of conversation. You know, Mr. and Mrs. Meeker, Mrs. Meeker is talking about how, you know, she has a, she had a room at our motel and it was crazy. And then, oh, well, you know, she's been influencing the young people and I'll make sure to it that, you know, anybody caught with her is expelled and blah, blah, blah. And then Chastity Pariah is all like, you know, maybe she's just different. She's just a whore, a concubine, a slut, a tramp, you know, all this. I didn't get that quote right, but, you know, it's just Edie McClurg being Edie McClurg, which I love. And so you have this boring ass, you know, board meeting or whatever. But again, this is kind of setting in the seed of that. Obviously, these people do not really like Elvira all that much, um, even though she didn't do anything to anybody, but whatever. Uh, obviously, you're going to go after the fabulous ones um, when you, you maybe aren't so fabulous yourself. You know what I mean? But anyway, the realtor, Kurt Fuller, he comes over to uh, Elvira's house for whatever reason, again, because she's trying to maybe sell her house and, and all of that. He then like sexually harasses her, which is the crazy thing about this movie is that like a lot of the men in the movie except for like the young men like the teenage boys are like all of them are a bunch of pieces of shit honestly like they all either like assault her in some way and she just has to like own their ass and like kick her them out of her house or like just defend herself which is just ugh it's so good though because you're just like oh my god like she's so awesome you know and so I just really appreciate that and I just thought it was so interesting that I'm just like, oh my god, like, these grown men are, like, horrible, and it's, like, the young people who seem to understand Elvira and actually get it, and, like, 
are not pieces of shit to her pretty much. After you have this, <laughs> I love the line where, you know, again, Elvira's trying to sell this house and she's on the phone to her manager, Manny. And she's like, oh, I was about six inches away from getting this house sold. But now she doesn't want to be with that realtor anymore, of course. And so Elvira and Manny are talking because, you know, they're trying to get that money for Las Vegas, but nothing's really happening. Nothing's really going her way like it's supposed to. And so then she's got to pound the pavement in Falwell, Massachusetts, trying to find herself a job. But everyone is turning her away because they don't want her to, you know, work for them pretty much. Which is just so sad, and I think she should honestly uh, file an EEOC claim, to be perfectly honest with you, but that's just me. Absolutely. She's looking for a job all over town, and nobody's really giving her a chance and all of that. And then it's not until Bob actually kind of sees her as well, and she talks to him about, like, oh, nobody's giving me a job, it's really hard to, you know, make this shit... And uh, he's like, well, you know, if I could, I would, you know, employ you at the, the movie house or whatever. She's like, oh, well, you know, I could do that. Like, you know, that's what I do already. Like, you let me do it. I'll do it. And they actually do make, I think, a little deal to actually do that. Be like, I'll show this movie and don't worry about it. I have all these movies in my trunk of my car, apparently. And so I'll, I'll make it happen. I'll do it. Don't worry And I don't actually know if Bob really wants to do it, but she's going to make it happen regardless, let's just say. And this is also the scene, of course, the iconic scene where uh, it was something where I think I think one of the letters like hits her in the hair or whatever. And Bob is all like, oh, how's your head? And she's like, well, haven't had any complaints lately. And so, you know, I thought that was just really funny. And again, it goes over a kid's head. Uh, in the meantime, while she's looking for a job and she ends up getting her little job at the movie theater, we see the henchman, Jeff Conaway, and the other guy um, <laughs> break into the house of Elvira to try to get this recipe book that, you know, Vinny wants so bad. And Gonk actually scares them away because they're pussies and, you know, whatever, they're scared away by this dog. And, you know, I guess I would be, too, depending on if the actual dog was, like, a, you know, really horrible. Why not? I'd probably be scared, too. And so then uh, we have that scene, and then we have Elvira and Bob. They talk a little bit, and then Elvira kisses him, which is nice. I think this might actually be the scene where they do the how's your head thing, because Elvira is talking about how she can't find herself a job. It really sucks, all that kind of stuff. But Elvira then makes herself a job, as I stated before. She has all these bad movies in the back of her car, her trunk, and she's like, hey, you know what? Let me screen one of my movies there. I'll make it worth, you know, the kid's while. I'll do this. It'll be good. So in the meantime, while Elvira is self-employing herself, uh, we then get back to Vinny, Uncle Vinny, and we go to his spooky lair. Um which we just see that he has this spooky lair where he's like doing a spell or something. And I have in my notes that the lair is jumping, jumping kind of like destiny's child. So because when he does this, like he does this, uh, this spell, uh, the lair is just like, <laughs> just moving around and everything, which is just insane. And I guess it's to assume that he is like talking to the late Aunt Morgana in some way, because that's his sister that's dead, and he might have had something to do with it, maybe? So, anyway. But, you have that kind of thing. 
So you then see Elvira, you know, pounding the pavement, going to the boiling alley, and she is there to rouse the youths, as I say in my notes. I'm now just going to refer to them as the youths, I think. But you have the uh, rousing the youths, but they're all afraid because she has been explicitly made aware that if you were hanging out with Elvira, you could be expelled. Um, And nobody really wants that. But, you know, these are like her friends, kind of, you know what I mean? Um, And so she talks about how, you know, like, oh, I I thought y'all were like my friends, you know, and I thought like I had this and it was all this kind of stuff she's talking about where, you know, people don't, you know, turn the back on you like that. And, you know. It's just really tough because, you know, yeah, you feel like these people are are afraid, of course, but it's because they're being made to be afraid by their superiors, by their higher ups, their principal or whoever, their parents. And so I just thought it was very interesting. But the youths decide to rebel and they sneak out to Elvira's show. So you see that Elvira is getting uh, ready backstage in the um, in the theater while all these kids are showing up to watch this movie that she's going to show and all that stuff. In the meanwhile, I think you also have Patty, played by Susan Kellerman. You met her earlier um, in the movie. And uh, you met her at the bowling alley, I think, the first time. But anyway, also, she's in this, and she sneaks into this showing, I think. And I love how it's like she sneaks back there, and you see her at the tips of her shoes, and then also her, like, boobs as well behind this curtain, which I thought was really funny. And so, Elvira's backstage, she's getting ready, and then you see that she's on this, like, stage where the kids are all seated in front of the stage, she is uh, on the stage with her little chaise lounge that she's like sitting on and the movie playing, which I believe she is showing the attack of the killer tomatoes, if I'm not mistaken, which I thought was really funny. And so uh, she is doing her thing. And but in true bitch fashion, though, Susan Kellerman, uh, Patty, she has rigged a in Carrie fashion. She has rigged this tar and feather like fucking um contraption where so elvira's doing her thing she's riffing on this movie and all that and then she does this like flash dance homage pretty much where it's like this homage to flash dance where she's gonna like dance kind of like it does in flash dance but then she gets tarred and feathered and that's just like really horrible because you know they're just trying to like keep a good girl down pretty much which is just so annoying then though but you know what they can't keep a good girl down okay and so even in the face of all of that bob and the kids then come back to elvira's house and they're like you know because elvira's licking her wounds and she's like come back home to like get all the tar and feathers off of her i like the line um where she's (laughs) cleaned herself off and she had to like use uh, i don't know what it was paint thinner or something like that to like get all the stuff off of her and somebody um asked her i think it's bob or somebody says you know are you wearing a new perfume and she's like yeah unleaded don't smoke which I just thought was really funny. And so I was like, okay. But anyway, so, you know, Bob and the kids come back to Elvira's house, but then, you know, it's time for the kids to go home because, you know, it's past their bedtimes or whatever. And so uh, this is because she wants to get some alone time with Bob. And so we see that the kids go home. We see that Bob is on one side of the couch and then Elvira's on the other side while they're watching TV or something, which I thought was kind of fun. And in the meantime, we see that 
Elvira is taking uh, her recipe book. She decides she's going to make dinner for Bob. And so she's like making this food or she's going to be making this recipe. And again, this is kind of a spell book, actually, we find out. But she just thought it was a cookbook, I think. And so she's like putting this all together. And she then is like making this this food for Bob. She then brings out this food. It's a casserole, pretty much. And so, you know, she puts down the casserole pan. She puts her little bib on and she's just like, well, I hope you're hungry because here's our casserole. And then the casserole, when she opens the casserole pan, it's just like a monster, pretty much, because she didn't realize that this is also a spell book, too. So, like, this fucking monster's there and is, like, you know, attacking both her and Bob, which I thought was really funny. This was actually, um, obviously, a, um, a special effect and everything. And according to Cassandra Peterson, actually, um, she was pretty game with having this casserole monster there. And then, of course having the guy who was doing the puppet for it's a puppet and having the puppet like guy right like on her lap like right in between her legs pretty much uh because somebody had to be under there to like do the whole puppet and everything so i'm sure they had a great time down there and she was game for it she didn't think anything of it so we then see the elvira and bob they kill the casserole monster thank god they like stick it in the fucking garbage disposal or something And so they're just like, oh, okay, good. Maybe we should just eat something else next or whatever. Like, I'll just keep it simple next time. And so then we see that uh, Bob and Elvira, they're checking out the rest of the house. And they then go from the kitchen and they end up checking something up in this creepy attic room. This creepy attic room seems to be a theme because we saw it a little bit earlier during her nightmare that she had, but now we're seeing it in real life. And so again, they go in here and they're like, you know, okay, what's going on? So then Elvira and Bob, they check out this old trunk because I think Gonk actually led them to it because he I think Gonk had actually taken the recipe book and ran up there, which is what led them to go up there. And so pretty much we see that they check out this old trunk, which has like bones in it and like other shit. But we do discover a letter that Aunt Morgana had left for Elvira. And so then we kind of get this idea with flashback, of course, where Aunt Morgana, who is played by Cassandra Peterson, actually, um, in a dual role, she is explaining how her parent, I guess, died when she was a baby or whatever, and Aunt Morgana was taking care of her. But then because of her Uncle Vinny trying to go after her and all that, um, she had to leave her at the orphanage. That's what had to happen. So then we see the back, we see the flashback of Aunt Morgana dropping off baby Elvira at the orphanage. And then she's talking about how, like, you know, don't trust your Uncle Vinny. Make sure he doesn't get this book. Um, all this kind of stuff. And to, to not trust him pretty much. And who's to say that she wasn't, killed by uncle Vinny either so we don't quite know that i think he she was kind of but anyway this is of also the iconic shot of the baby elvira with makeup on which i love because then that just shows that like that's her face i guess which is just really funny that like this baby just has a full beat on which is just 
honestly iconic. And so this is where they discover that Uncle Vinny is actually evil because they didn't really know that before uh, exactly. We knew it as the audience, but we, you know, the, you, Elvira didn't know it. Um, even though she is iconic, you know, it's not like she just digs into all that. So then you have Elvira cast a spell because they can't, apparently she knows how to do that now because she was like, well, I didn't know I was, I always thought it was kind of weird, but I didn't know I was this weird. You know, I'm like a pseudo metaphysical celebrity. You know, I'm like related to somebody like that. So she casts a spell, the room shakes. So and then all the lights go off and she somehow, I think, thinks that like, I don't know what she thought Bob was doing with her because she was like, hey, Bob, I mean, you know, I wanted to do a little something. And you you see her being all like sensual or whatever. And then like you then see that like Bob is like trying to find a light. He's like trying to light a candle or something. And then when he finally gets the light, she's just like holding a snake. And so I don't know if she thought she was doing a little something else with a snake or uh, a certain type of snake. <laughs> but I mean, you know, who knows? Anyway, that's what happened with that. But then we then move on from that into the morality picnic, which is being held in like a part of the uh, the town. And so everyone's there being all moral and whatever. And they have this like Shriner group, like uh, playing their instruments or whatever. And Bob and Elvira go to this picnic and Elvira drops off a casserole, as you do. I guess they thought it was going to be kind of the casserole monster. I think that's maybe what Elvira thought, I guess. But then she puts her casserole out there. She just kind of watches and sees if anybody's going to bite it and, you know, he's going to eat it. And so she's watching this and everyone's getting their food. Uh, there was this fucking weird ass Tic Tac pie that I do not understand why anybody would eat, but ew, it literally has Tic Tacs on it, which I thought was just weird. But anyway, uh, th- these are the kind of people. Um, but anyway, so she's watching and we see that, you know, people are going to eat the casserole. So like chastity takes some and the rest of everyone takes some. They're like, okay, I guess, you know, Elvira's like, okay, I guess it wasn't the, what I expected. You know, I substituted a few things as, as I do. And then in my notes, I say that this casserole then makes everyone horny as shit in the picnic. <laughs> Cause it does. It like just enhances their libido and also they're just it loosens their inhibitions if you will how about that and so which i just thought was really funny and so everyone's just like feeling sexy and wanting to like take their clothes off and like fucking just do whatever i mean this is pg-13 so they couldn't have an orgy in the woods but it could have gotten there who knows one of my favorite scenes is that um it was i think patty and another person said you know what this reminds me of do you know what this reminds me of? And so she's holding like a hot dog wiener or no, the guy's holding a hot dog wiener um, and Patty is holding a, a hard taco shell and she just takes the hot dog wiener and puts it in the hot taco shell and bites it. And I thought that was just so funny and stupid and wonderful. Oh my God. That was, that was honestly cinematic masterpiece, honestly. But anyway, we then find out that uncle Vinny, he shows up in his car and, and he's all evil and stuff. And he's all like saying, you know, oh, Elvira, like, you know, like you, she realizes like, OK, you're evil. You're not going to get away with any of this, like all of that. And then you see that Bob has left Elvira and has uh, went through this morality picnic that turned into not so morality picnic, I guess. But we see that Patty is dancing 
because everyone's dancing, is dancing with Bob. And so then we see Elvira is like trying to get Bob back and Patty's just like feeling her oats and feeling herself. And then Elvira just punches Patty because she's like, all right, like fuck off, you know, whatever. And so then we see the, um, I call it the post picnic board meeting because it's everybody now just being very ashamed of what they were doing. So like, for example, I think uh, Mrs. Meeker was like, he should be, he should be punished because he did this to me or whatever. And I wasn't in my right frame of mind and all this kind of stuff. And everyone's just trying to like find a reason of why they were doing all that and to how to feel bad about it, I guess. But then Uncle Vinny comes into the the chat, if you will, and he of course uses Elvira as as a scapegoat for it all to be like, don't you see? It's that Elvira woman. Like she's to blame for all of this. Cause why wouldn't she be? She looks different than everybody, so why not? We then very quickly go into the fact that Elvira gets arrested, I guess, and put into jail. And so we see Elvira and Gonk, they're put into jail. And then Elvira talks to the police officer there, but like he doesn't do shit for her. And so then um, the teens, the youths, they are on the police station roof trying to break Elvira out because they want to help her. While in the meantime, while this is happening, the townsfolk are already um, getting ready to actually burn Elvira because they're in the board meeting. They talked about how there is a law in Massachusetts that still outlaws witchcraft and of course Elvira is a witch and so of course they can burn her at the stake as they would please and so that's what they're going to to put her to Gonk uh, turns around a couple of times in the cell and uh, turns into a rat to be able to try to like to try to fix and you know help Elvira pretty much to get out of jail and everything. So Gaunt goes back home because at this point we see that Bob uh, has been told by Elvira because he sees her in jail. Like, oh, hey, you know what? Go get my re- go get my spell book and I can try to use that to do something with this. And um, I love it where, you know, Bob is like about to leave and then she's like, oh, wait, 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 Bob, Bob, Bob. She's like, you know, I hid it under the floorboard un- uh, in the living room. And then she- he's like, okay, I got it, got it. And then she's like, oh, wait, 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 Bob, Bob, wait, Bob. And he comes back and she's- he's like, what? And she's like, hurry and i just think that was really funny but anyway so like she uh he goes back but then he i think he gets knocked out at her house and so he gets tied up by uncle Vinny and the henchman i believe which then gonk helps break him out of there you see a priest coming to give the last rites to Elvira, which is just like, it was funny because like Elvira was like, oh, somebody who can talk some sense to these people. And then it ends up being that he's just like on their side, obviously. And like, he's just reading her, his, her last rites pretty much. And so then though, in this time, we then see while the priest is giving the last rites to Elvira, the teens fall through the other cell's roof because they didn't realize which cell she was in. So now they're just in the jail cell, which is just like super funny. And then as I stated, like Gonk helps break Bob's out of the rope because his hands got tied behind his back when he was trying to help Elvira go back to her house and get the spell book. And so um, Gong helps break her him out of the rope that he was tied up so he could get the, uh, the spell book. 
At this point, Elvira is then led to the pyre and tied up to burn, pretty much. And then we see that, you know, they have her on the pyre about to be burned. And then Patty, uh, good old Patty, she comes and is like, wait, what you're doing is wrong. And she's like, oh, wait, what? And then Patty's like, it'll burn quicker if you light it at different places. And so they're about to, like, light you know, Elvira on fire. When all of a sudden, though, Elvira is using her ring that she got to try to break out of her ropes. But, of course, in true magic fashion, she's able to, like, break out of her rope. Uh, But then also there was a rainstorm that came because this fire was about to, like, you know, burn her up. Uh, But this rainstorm actually came and actually put out the fire and it made everyone go away, which was very, very convenient. There's a little bit of a fun kind of fact, if you will, of this. So what pretty much happened was that with Cassandra Peterson in this role, she even said, I think it was in the In Search of Darkness documentary, she talks about how, like, you know, this movie came to be and everything and all that. And one of the things was uh, she put her life on the line many times in this movie, apparently. And one of the times was, like, the fact that both in this scene where she's at the pyre about to be burned and then uh, later on when the house is burning, as we'll talk about, that fire's real. Like, that's not fake. And so they had her in flame retardant all over her body uh, because she would have went up in flames with all that hairspray she had on and all the shit she had. So they had her in flame retardant, like gel or whatever, which someone failed to mention to her really itches really badly. So, like, for example, like, she couldn't really scratch herself because like she's being tied behind her back and like all that so oh it was just a miserable time apparently but um yeah that ended up happening so then you see that like you see that she's tied to the stake the fire's lit but morgana's ring helps her to summon a rainstorm that helps quench the flames and she then escapes with bob so back at the mansion, uh, we see that Elvira and Uncle Vinny engage in a magical battle. They already kind of uh, did that as well. Like, I think there was a point also where, like, uh, I believe it was Uncle Vinny who came out of, like, one of the shops or something. And now you can tell he's, like, super duper magical warlock evil. And so then you see uh, that, like, they're fighting, fighting. You see that uh, Elvira throws her shoe heel at him in a graveyard um you then also see while they're still fighting you see that um (laughs) one of the fun uh kind of gags that elvira has is that she goes into this like army surplus store and she comes out with like this big ass bazooka and like this beautiful outfit or whatever and she just says you looking for me and so i really enjoy that i thought that was really funny uh but they're still fighting 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 so uncle Vinny and vira they uh get in a magical battle that sets the house on fire so they're just like fighting each other and then over this you hear morgana who's saying like you have the power use it you know all that kind of stuff after believing in herself and having self-determination we see that elvira banishes Vinny to the underworld while the house that she inherited and all of the magical artifacts within it are destroyed as it's coming down around her in flames. Then you have the next day, which is Elvira preparing to leave the town. Um, so she has no house anymore, and the insurance doesn't uh, cover for acts of demons. So that didn't really work. 
then you see this kind of odd thing where the townspeople come to apologize for their behavior. Um, so all of the people of the town, they've come together and they brought their teenagers with them and all that to to apologize. And they ask Elvira to stay. They, they want her to stay. And she kisses Bob, which is wonderful and great. And you know, I'm sure she would love to stay, but uh, seeing as she doesn't have a house anymore, um, she insists that she does have to leave, um, and she can't stay any longer, even though she's made the wonderful of friends uh, at this juncture. But then um, we find out, as his sole living relative, Elvira has actually inherited Vinny's estate, which then allows her to be able to open her show in Las Vegas. And so (laughs) it's a wonderful ending where it's like, you see that she's just like, Elvira is being told like, oh, hey, like, you know, you're now uh, the benefactor of Vinny's estate. And she's just like, (laughs) just looks right at the camera and says this um, line. And then it moves into this, this shot of, the Las Vegas Strip, and you see that it's Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. She has her own show, plus Shecky Green, which I just thought was fun. And so then you see this like wonderfully lavish produced musical number that is like pre being performed. So you see that it's like this big lavish performance number where you have Elvira singing and dancing with her background dancers. She also has like some rappers as well, and she's rapping a little bit too. And then she has her wonderful trick of her boob tassels and her uh, being able to shake her tits and be able to make these move a certain way. She starts off with one boob and doing it, and then she does it on the other, and then both of them are moving. It's iconic and wonderful. In the meanwhile, while in on the side of the stage, you have manager Manny and Bob, who are there to give support, while she finishes this whole musical number and she gets this kind of standing ovation and these flowers and everything and it's so wonderful to see and you know she's just like mwah mwah wonderful and of course as she normally does at the end of movie macabre she wishes her audience unpleasant dreams and that is the end of elvira mistress of the dark so I think it's needless to say that I really enjoy Elvira Mistress of the Dark. I enjoy this movie. I'm so glad I've finally watched it and have been able to have the the utmost pleasure of really being able to see it. Um, I think this movie is the absolute one of the epitomes of a cult classic movie. It's a film that really... I think works for exactly what it is. It is a tongue in cheek camp movie that I think was a little ahead of its time. It was just something where, you know, this character that was created was able to have this platform, which was so super cool. And I think now it's just appreciated as this camp classic movie. And it's just so funny. And it really shows Cassandra Peterson exactly how she needs to be shown, you know, and, and I think absolutely this is something where I could understand people really enjoying it, especially if they're growing up with it. You know, the adult humor goes over your head when you're a kid, but as you get older and you've watched it, you can understand it and appreciate it more. And I absolutely just think it is a, a an absolutely wonderful movie and completely worth anyone's time to watch it, really. Uh, if you wanted to watch it, you are more than welcome to. I would absolutely agree. Uh, 
believe to to get this any way you can. Right now, it is currently on Amazon Prime. It's also on Shutter under the Elvira's 40th uh, special anniversary special special, um, or whatever it's called. She shows this movie and then also House on Haunted Hill from 1959. I think City of the Living Dead or City of Evil or something and the Messiah of Evil or something like that. So that's the way this also shows up on Tubi here and there uh it shows up uh on all sorts of places so i'm more than i think you could watch on youtube for free with ads so you could absolutely find this movie anywhere really and i absolutely think it's completely worth your time um if you haven't watched it before definitely get on it you know i think you should just indulge yourself and let yourself watch it and you'll you'll be a better person for it if anything as always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. In case you want to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you just want to say, hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram handle is Cult Cinema Circle, and Twitter handle is Cult Cine Circle. On those platforms, I tend to announce the different episodes I'm going to be doing. I'll make little Instagram stories when we have an episode drop and just generally interact with anybody on there that wants to interact with me. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On there, I log the movies that I watch and write little reviews about them and just general foolishness over there. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much out there everywhere. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review so we can grow the audience more and also just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 1993's Days to Confused. This critically acclaimed cult favorite, written and directed by Richard Licklater, explores the last day of school and one wild night in the lives of high school students in 1976, complete with bongs and bell-bottoms, macrame and mood rings, and featuring classic rock music by Aerosmith, Black Sabbath, and Kiss, this superb ensemble cast of up-and-comers delivers an enduring film that Rolling Stone called spectacularly funny. 1976 was a time they'd never forget, if only they could remember. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, and remember... Tell them I was more than just a great set of boobs. I was also an incredible pair of legs. Take care. Bye.